Well, let's get into scripture, shall we? We're in Second Samuel chapter three. Let's go to the Lord right in prayer. We'll bite off a piece at a time and chew it. And then bite off another piece and chew it. Then bite off another piece and chew it. And enjoy it. Let's go to the one for whom all praise is due. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for Jesus. We want to thank you for the blessing of being able to come to you and to seek your face. I want to thank you, Lord, for how beautiful it is to turn our hearts to you. I want to thank you for the way that you love us. I want to thank you for the way that you speak to us. God, by the power of your Spirit, speak to every one of us. We've come tonight to to fellowship with you, to interface with each other, but first and foremost with you, Lord, to hear your plan and Lord, you tell us that faith comes by hearing and that your word. And so tonight, as we hear your word, install greater faith. Deposit that into our account, Lord, so that we tonight would find ourselves in a place of just greater love and deeper joy in you. And Lord, that we would just, we'd know more than just your stats. We'd know your heart. So God, that when we are confronted in moments where the circumstances seem to somehow bring us to a place where we just don't understand, we can still know your good and be rev- and review, Lord, your history that you've made so clear to us in your word. So, Lord, as we take a look at David's life again here, as we continue in his life, Lord, help us to understand. And, Lord, just whatever it is you want to speak to each of us, speak it now, I pray. Have your way redeem every second. May we have so much fun in your word. Captivate us in your word, Lord, and... Let this be an amazing time. In Jesus' name, amen. Like always, please never just believe me. Never assume it's just true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the, let the word of God stand and everything else be tested in result of it. We read this in our first five verses. Now, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Ammon. Hey, let's just let's just try these names. I'll I'll bark them out to you. You guys, see if you can say it back. Ammon, Ahinoam. That's by the way the dad. I'm sorry, the wife, uh, the Jezreelites, the Jezreelites. The second, Chiliav. Chiliav. You got to spit. You got to get that spit. Spit on someone in front of you. Chiliav. Uh, Av- Avigal, the wife of Naval, the Carmelite, the third Absalom, the uh, son of Maaka. Try that, Maaka. Maaka. Maaka, by the way, means oppression. Who marries a girl named oppression? should see that one come in. There's marriage counseling waiting to happen with that one. She's the daughter of Talmai. We'll build on that in another time. It's the king of Geshur. The fourth is Odania. Odania, the son of Haggith. Haggith, of course, means that she was Scottish. Uh, the fifth, Shephatiah, son of Ab- Abital. 
By the way, did you notice with Abital, by the way, she's only mentioned twice in Scripture here and in the counter, counter text of this in the Chronicles. She's not mentioned as his wife. Did you notice that? It's like this gal, his wife, this gal, the wife, and so forth. And he's like, and then there's this gal. Um, and then the sixth is Ithraim. Try that, Ithraim. Son of wife, and his wife's name is Egla. Try that one, Egla. And Egla is definitely one of those names. Hi, I'd like you to meet my wife. This is Egla. Funny. Egla, by the way, for what it's worth, means heifer. Yeah, who named their, their daughter that? Uh, these were born to David in Hebron. Here's our first place on it. Now, let's just kind of get our context again. And I, I remind you, this, they're speaking Hebrew and they're naming it. But let's face it, we have that here. I mean, this doesn't happen as much in America as it does here. But you can go to Broccoli or to Spitalfields or to Mudshoot. Those are English words. We know what that means. And I don't know. There's the idea that let's go to Spitalfields Market. Now, understand, as of somebody who isn't born here, that sounded really strange to me, that you would buy something at a place that's a field of spit. I don't know what you were to buy there, but it just sounded weird. But then we came, we went to a health food store today, and you could buy snail slime. Did you know that? The stuff that they leave, the goo they leave behind, the track so you can follow the snail. Not like you get them, like, you know, it isn't like, where does the snail go? Just look an inch, you know, an hour. I guess you rub it on your eyes, you know. Anyways, nonetheless, where in the world am I going with, with, with all of this? Back in our text. David is the rightful king during the time when a man named Saul, Shual, by the way, is, <clears throat> has been fired. He's been fired for taking on account, taking into his own hands only what God can do with the sacrifice and then not going all out. And he starts to display a heart that really is, doesn't belong to God like it should. And understand, for the greater the calling that God places on your life, greater in the sense of its influence over people, the more God's going to demand. And he tells us that in regards to teachers. In this room, whether you're a teacher or not, I know I am in the sense, I'm doing that right now. I'm going to receive a stricter judgment and even make it more fun. I go straight through scripture, which means I'm going to be accountable for the entire Bible. We've taught through it now a few times. And... The, the idea that I'm going to stand before God and God's going to go, you know, you know the scripture. You've been teaching through this. Uh, that holds me accountable to that. And Saul has this fantastic calling, but he really he has a heart that's lacking an appropriate condition for the calling he has. And in our own lives, in the same ways, we start to compare it again. David's certainly not perfect. He's a human being, but he is a man after God's own heart. And as we've been seeing last week, what we start to see is, is that in our own lives, the moment we say yes to Jesus, uh, more than likely our encounter is more of a savior encounter in the beginning, and it's a learned Lord encounter, if that makes sense. I mean, we understand the idea we need to be saved. Somewhere down the line, the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts, and we're like, wow, I'm going to hell unless I say yes to Jesus. And we say yes to Jesus because we don't want to go to hell. And, I mean, that's, that only sounds reasonable and sane, and then somewhere in all of that, we realize that Jesus doesn't demand that we call him Savior. He demands that we call him Lord. He has to be more than just the rescuer. He rescued us to, to be with us. And we learn how to make him Lord for the rest of our lives. In the situation with Saul and David, Saul, by the way, Shual means sought after. And that's where we started this whole crazy thing with Mudshoot and Spitalfields, is that these names were names in a language they spoke. 
And in the same way that if I were to call, if a daughter was named Daisy, we'd kind of guess what that came from. And in the same way with all of that, now this sought-after individual now is being replaced by a man named Beloved. Davidam just means beloved. And there's something in the difference between a religion where we're seeking after, we're, we're trying to make it happen, and really just surrendering to the love because we're loved by God. And I like that term, be loved. And I, I get that. God's like, look at on one side of it, you could be seeking after and trying to do it yourself, trying to make yourself right with me. On the other side of it, you could just be loved and receive the gift I offer you. And as we are receiving that gift, we recognize, even as we see with David, that this wasn't like a switch got hit and all of a sudden Saul uh, was, Saul said, you know, you're right. What am I thinking? God fired me. David, please take my throne. I submit to you. We never see that with Saul. What we see is that that old man has to die so that the new king can take his throne. But even after the old man dies, it still wasn't a beautiful, easy transition, was it? At the end of 1 Samuel, that's 1 Samuel 31, Saul dies in battle, assumedly still in his kingly robes. Certainly wearing a crown and an, and a and his signet bracelet. We know that because the Amalekite takes those things from a dead Saul and brings them to David. So he was wearing them at his death. And yet here we are in Second Samuel 3. And David is really only the king of one tribe of the 12. He will not actually be king of all, all 12 of them. Until Second Samuel 5, it'll be seven and a half years from the time that David actually, at least seven and a half years after Saul dies and seven, after, uh, seven and a half years after David takes the throne of anything. And might I say what's interesting, and it's important to note in this, this is what we may see in our own lives. Now, look, at maybe you've seen someone give their life to Christ and you know that they didn't want to go to hell, so they said yes to Jesus as Savior. And it is a very learned thing, if we're being honest to really let Jesus be and make Jesus the Lord of our lives. And we would love that to be quicker, wouldn't we? Wouldn't it love it just God just to hit a switch and the next thing you know, we were, we were completely obedient in every, every area. But we're already being accused of being robots by the unsaved world. And, and that's what we would have to be to be that obedient with a switch. So David never forces the throne he takes the throne never by force, only by permission, never at once, but the closest part first, because David was Judean and thus his tribe was the first to make him king, that inside circle before the out, and never without opposition. Let me say those three things as we dive into our text again. David, as he takes the throne, he never takes it by force. It's never by force. And, you know, sometimes I, I guess I wouldn't mind God just kind of coming in and just kicking butt on everything in my life that stands against him. But he's such a gentleman. He would much rather I hand it over to him than him take it. And I love the fact that I have a gentleman king who, by the way, has all of the power of the universe because he is called El Shaddai or a God Almighty. And there is something amazing about handing God your love. On Friday, three days from now, I will officially be married 27 years. Of those 27 years, it has been a learning process for both of us, of course, because we're both very independent human beings about learning what it means to put the other before each other. And in that, 
we can all agree my forcing her to love me would never be her love anyways. If I came in and by force exerted myself in some way to demand her mindless obeisance, it wouldn't be anything healthy. And it would be no victory in that whatsoever. And Jesus, in the same way as our groom, steps in as a gentleman, never by force, because to be honest, it would never be love if it was. But not only not by force, again, not all at once, because to be honest, I don't think we're capable of that. I don't think we're capable of actually just kind of going, oh, yes, Lord. I mean, we say have everything until tomorrow or maybe even tonight when something comes up we like a little bit more than we should. And the Lord says, can I have that? And we're like, can you have part of it? And in the same way, when Jesus spoke to his disciples in Acts 1, when he said that the power of God will come upon them, the promise of the Father, they'll receive power when God's Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father will come upon them and they will be witnesses, literally, maturias, evidence in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He started with Jerusalem because that's where they were. And in the same way in your own life, God, as he starts to take his lordship in your life, he'll start right in the area you're at. You'll start to see it affecting not just you, but the closest to you first. And then from that, it will grow like concentric circles to reach the farther and more distant places of your influence. But again, it is never without, in, without opposition. But if I look at that text and I compare that to my own life, these first five verses, let's be honest, are really very encouraging verses. Because what it tells us is the rightful king continues to grow stronger and stronger. And the old king's family continues to grow weaker and weaker. We have a mantra, we would say. It's a poor choice of words because that's obviously, to be honest, from an Eastern thing. What John the Baptist says when people are saying, you know, everyone's leaving you and going to that Jesus fellow. Loose paraphrase, that's John 3. And John's response, of course, is he must increase. And I must decrease. And that is the life of a Christian. He must increase. I must decrease. I pray, and this is the beauty of being a pastor. I am not called to be an example of perfection, but I would love to be an example of pursuit. I mean, I would definitely like to be a person who upholds the, the standards and ethic and moral conduct that you would expect from a person that represents the Lord. Love my wife, love my children, say no and worship God in those no's when I should say no. But please understand, a year from now, I pray you would see more Jesus in me than you do right now. I pray you'd see a lot of Jesus in me right now. But I pray a year from now, you'd see even more because he still needs to increase and I still need to decrease. That will be the story of my life. And there was a long war, notice in verse 1. It wasn't a quick war. It wasn't just like all of a sudden David came in with his mighty banshees and they just killed anything Saulish. But rather it was a long battle. But David grew stronger and stronger and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. So why give us verses 2 through 5? What's such a big deal about verses 2 through 5? What that tells us is when David, when the rightful king 
grows stronger and stronger in your life, one of the first things you start to see is fruit. Wouldn't that make sense? Because that's what David's doing here. He has a six-pack of kids. Uh, strangely enough, from you know, from six-pack of women, if you will. And then, he, by the way, later on, what we'll find in chapter 5 is that he'll actually have 11 more children. I mean, at least, at least, in this case, 17 uh, children, 18 children. And David gives us, what we have in the, is the list of these people, and they're listed in order. That will come in important later when we start to see what happens after David's fall. But the first name, Amnon, for what it's worth, means to build up or to be faithful. And the reason I say that is these particular things are actually what I would expect if Jesus started to take more and more control of my life. The fruit that starts to get born. Chiliav, by the way, means the father's restraint. Or if you will, the father grants control. Like, in other words, we start to give God more control. And we might even say self-control as part of the fruit of the Spirit. Abba Shalom would make sense. Abba means what? Who can tell me what Abba means? Yeah, excellent. God, Daddy. How about Shalom? Peace. So it means the Father's peace. Adonia, Yah is in Yahweh, God, the Lord. By the way, Adon means master or Lord. So what Adonia means is the Lord is God. And what I start to see is that he starts to, as I start to grant him greater lordship in my life, he becomes more and more so. It becomes a journey, a trajectory, and not just a stance. Shifatia, by the way, means God's judgment. Not just judgment like God's just condemning, because that's not all of God's judgment. God's judgment is every choice God makes. He's making a judgment call. Let's be honest. Do you remember, some of you, as, you've, as you're growing in the Lord, what it was like the first time that you made a choice and you could back up that choice with Scripture and you were completely sure that that choice was the right one because it was? Where it wasn't convoluted and it wasn't gray or fuzzy or any of that, but you just knew this was wrong because it was wrong or this was right because it was right. And you were like, without a doubt, and how fresh that felt in a world right now that doesn't, not only wants to blur the edges, but doesn't want any edges at all. Doesn't want any lines anywhere anymore. I mean, I don't know whether I'm a boy or a girl or the other 27 different genders now. How many genders can you give to a child? I mean, you know, forgive me for saying, but back in my days, it was pretty simple. You could have figured it out quite quickly. I'm not trying to sound old or irrelevant. The point is, it's not about me trying to be more relevant to a weird, God-forsaken culture, but rather it's about trying to draw the culture back to relevance with the living God. And understand, God has judgments, and he makes clear judgments. And as we get into Scripture, things are just wrong because God says they're wrong. And it doesn't matter how many people take a vote on it, as Scripture says, let God be true and every man a liar. In other words, even if every man on earth took a vote and made a decision that something wasn't sin that God called sin, God is not changing his mind. Never will God look at cancer and think that that's good for your body. And the reason I say that is when something destroys you, God sees it as bad. God doesn't see, doesn't God, God doesn't call sin bad because he thinks you'll have fun with it and he doesn't want you to have fun. 
From the moment I was old enough to think my mother was eroding away from cancer. And I watched her. I mean, being nine years old, help carry, help, helping carry her from one room to another because she had become this beautiful, vivacious, if you will, sort of a thin Marilyn Monroe, had, had become this sort of still fiery and feisty inside. She had all the fight of angel and then some. But if you can imagine that. But, and, she, and she needed it. But, but she just eroded to the skeleton of a human being. And I just remember that. And the reason I hated the cancer was because I loved my mother. I would have been indifferent about cancer, except for I knew that it did nothing but destroy her. Until finally she surrendered to it when I was 11. And when God looks at sin, he sees that as a cancer upon you. And the reason he hates it is because he loves you. And how strange would it be if we were to say, well, we all took a vote and decided we like cancer. And God's like, what is wrong with you? It's killing you. How could you like that? And that's the idea here. When we look at God's judgments, the moment I stop asking the world to define God's terms, it really does become simple and clear. And people go, I just don't understand the scriptures because so many people have so many different viewpoints. And I'm like, have you ever just read it and asked God to tell you truth in it? And you're like, but I don't understand everything. And God's like, that's because your brains would explode if you understood everything. But I guarantee you, if you read, he will make clear what you need today as you read through it. And then as you read through Scripture, and he starts to build that first floor on this simple, beautiful, foundational truth, the next time you read through it, he'll start showing you other things that you could never have learned on the second floor until he built the first. And we often say, well, that's a fifth floor thing. And what that means is, until we kind of get the basic four levels prior to that, I don't know if we're really going to get to an understanding of these particular things. But I guarantee you, you'll know who he is, what he's done, why he's done it, and what's right and wrong without having anybody having to tell you about it except Scripture, if you're willing to do so. It just takes the humility to say, okay, well, I may not get that yet, but I got this out of it. David had a lot of kids, and David was growing stronger, and Saul was growing weaker. Could you have gotten that out of the text? Then maybe you're not reading Hebrew, so you're not going, well, obviously, Chiliav means. But you get the point that he has a lot of kids. But I love the fact, if we look at it, that Saul's family, the old, the old king is growing weaker and weaker and weaker. And his legacy, if you will, his, you know, sort of the, the wake behind him is growing weaker and weaker. But the good king, the new king, the right king is starting to bear fruit as he becomes more and more prominent in this place. But what I love is the last one after this, we have faithful and building up. We have the Father's restraint. We have the Father's peace. We have the Lord being God and God's judgment. Uh, and then we have the last one, Ithraim. And I love this. Ithraim, actually, Ithraim means overflow. And I love the fact that what I start to see, and look at, understand. This, please understand, this is David as king of how many tribes here? One. This isn't when David finally became king of all 12. This is David just getting some, if you, pardon me for saying, one cheek on the throne. I mean, this is David just getting to the place where he is just starting to look at part of 
I mean, a small part of all of Israel. But even when he gets to that one part, you start to see some form of overflow happen. Could you imagine what would happen if we gave God everything? Because sometimes I think we've given God something and we've seen something so magnificent. We've like, well, why give him anything more? Look how great it is. Because we've never seen greater than this before. And here it is. The king is starting to have this place where I just love this. He looks and he like, you know, imagine like, what's your name? Abundance, overflow. You know, why? Because I was like six boys, you know. So I think the last one's like, wow, you're like, you're more than enough. And that's just our first five verses. Verse six. So it was so. Now it was so. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. Do you remember Abner? Now you'll really impress me if you could remember what his name means. Abner, I remind you, was the son of Ner. What does Abner mean? Ner is my dad. Abner, the son of Ner. But do you remember what Ner means? Fire. Very good. The son of fire. Does anyone remember the king? His name is Ishbosheth. What his name means? Ish means man of. So Ishbosheth means man of shame. Well done. It was that there was a war between the sought after. There was still this continual war. And then during this time, this man of fire continues to strengthen his hold over the house of Saul. Now, Saul had a concubine. Remember what a concubine? A concubine basically is someone that you get to basically have all of the benefits of marriage without any of the commitment. Does that sound anything like today? I mean, I remember there's an expression. We had a gal uh, from Tennessee. Bless her, and she had this sort of country charm about her. So she'd say these. She'd she'd be kind of I don't know. She'd be kind of normal, but then she'd get these moments, and she her head would start to turn. She'd say something like this. She was a nurse at a prison, and so she'd go. You know, we have a we have a saying. And the moment she says that, we're all listening because you know she's like, we have a saying here at the prison: if it's wet and it's not yours, don't touch it. Well, that's a good one to live by. Anyways, yeah, think on that one for a moment. And where in the world was I going to go with this? She had another expression. And uh, forgive me. Yeah, forgive me. Yes, thank you. Forgive me for being so brain dead. But yeah, so she used to say, because there was a couple and they'd be living together, and the gal couldn't understand why the guy wouldn't propose to her. And she just says, well, you know, we have a saying, why buy the cow when you get the milk for free? And that was, and I'm like, wow, well, profound in its own way. Why would you get somebody to commit when they have nothing to gain for it? And that was what a concubine was. A concubine was just basically someone that you that acted like a wife without you having to be responsible as a husband. And apparently Saul had a bunch of them. And one of them's name was Rizpah. She was the daughter of Ayah. And the son of, of shame, man of shame, Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? You can see what he's, he's obviously accusing him of. Now, understand here, the house that was here was built on intrigue. Ishbosheth, by the way, was propelled into a place to, to and we're going to see here in a moment, it was very clear that God had promised David and everyone seemed to know it. And it's very clear that the people really wanted David to be king. But it's this guy, to be honest, Abner, who's really been fighting him. And so he you know, kind of props up Ishbosheth, And because he did it, and in other words, they kind of all knew it was wrong when they did it even if no one said it. So 
you know, if you kind of cheated your way into something, you kind of figure everyone else around you is cheating their way around you. Does that make sense? You don't, how do you trust anyone if you're not honest? And that's kind of the idea here. So, hey, look at the idea is, is if you wind up kind of all of a sudden buddying up with one of your dad's, you know, housemaids, if you will. Well, then sooner or later, you kind of think, well, obviously, well, what's left but him to take the throne? And Ishbosheth is a little intimidated. And by the way, it turns out Abner is kind of a really kind of a hard guy to be around anyways. So he's kind of freaked out by him. And he's like, hey, 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 why, what are you doing with this woman? No, Ishbosheth is losing his, group, his grip. And because he's losing his grip, his accusations become the next tactic. And let me say that in regards to our own lives. Hear this. When the man of shame cannot get the foothold he wants. And I remind you, the man of shame comes from the past. When the man of shame can't get back and get a foothold in your life, the next thing to throw in is going to be accusations. And that's what he's doing here. And you know, it works so well in church. And my brother, who, by the way, is my pastor, says, he says, you know, I have heard it said, and we have a saying, <laughs> uh, that, you know, a lie can go around the world while the truth is getting its boots on. You know, it tells us in Scripture, and I'm not saying this, by the way, because I think that this has to be in response to something I'm hearing, because I'm not. But it says that to never enter, even entertain an accusation against an elder, except by two or more witnesses. And it's amazing. Someone out there is like, could you hear about this guy? Oh, come on, I don't even want to hear about it. But did you hear about this pastor? Oh, what did he do? And it's amazing how much information we'll dig up on someone that we've never really experienced. But I heard from someone that's a reliable source. It's amazing how that works because somehow people want to hear that. What's strange is how the church does too. And here, understand, the enemy is the accuser. He'll accuse you to God, God to you, others to you, and you to others. And it works because he knows that if he can divide people, they'll be less effective as an army. And Ishbosheth now, he's, he's paranoid. He's freaked out because he got this place by intrigue. So he starts throwing accusations. And I want to warn you, as you start growing in the Lord, accusations will be something we have to fight. The enemy will accuse you to you, get you just thinking a lot about you or someone else. And it's amazing. The moment somebody else, the, the enemy accuses someone else to you, how righteous you think you are at the moment like that. And it's wild how that really tears people. And we've watched that rip through like a wildfire and destroy brand new growing Christians who were flowering in Christ. It really grieves me. And of course we see it here. From the past temptations of bad rulership to present accusations, the enemy is not going to take this lying down because this new king, when he gets to the throne, the kingdom of David is going to be invincible. Well, Abner's now been accused, and what we're going to find is it seems like he didn't do it at all. Uh, verse 8, then Abner becomes very angry, not just angry, at the words of Ishbosheth, and he said, and, have you ever said this? Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? May God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not do for David, listen to these words, as the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom of the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. He could not answer Abner another word because he freaked out by him. He, was, he feared him. 
Now, did you see the, uh, the confession that Abner makes in this? Abner is very aware of the fact that God has promised to remove the house of Saul. And notice the term he uses, transfer the kingdom of the house of Saul and set up the throne of David. Do you see those words? God is not a God of nots. He's a God of instead of, And he is great at transferring. If you let him. And he goes, you know, what's clear is Abner then, that tells me, Abner in clear rebellion to God. Says, well then we'll just prop up another leader from Saul's family. When he knew that God said, Saul, you're done. Remember, before Saul was ever fired, his lineage was already fired. That was what Saul's first failure was taking the sacrifice in his own hands. And now this Abner character looks and he's like, what are you charging me with this woman for? You know, do you realize how stupid it is for me to prop you up in the first place and how loyal I've been to you when I shouldn't be because clearly God said otherwise? How crazy of a conversation is this? And you realize his rebellion led a country to follow the wrong leader. God, God promised. God promised that David was going to do this. And if God promised it, all you can do at best, if you think, is delay it. And that, you're not even going to do that. You can just fight it and not enjoy that God's going to get it done one way or another. You just have to choose what side you're on. Abner knew, if not Ishbosheth, that setting up Ishbosheth was in direct rebellion to God's will. So, Abner's like, you know what? I'm tired of being loyal to you. Now, hear me on this. Abner is the commander of the enemy army. The most outspoken and, if you will, probably the most high-profile antagonist to David right now. He seems to be even more than Ishbosheth. And what's amazing is that even such a man can change. If you were to go into the New Testament, who seems to be the most prolific, outspoken, antagonist to Christianity in all of the New Testament? Was it Pilate? Was it Herod? Was it any specific religious leader? Only one person in the entire New Testament, do I read, went after them. From house to house, getting them to blaspheme, ripping man from wife, wife from man, children from their parents and parents from their children, seeking to get them to deny Christ, having them arrested, beating them, killing them. Only one person in the entire New Testament has that testimony. And his name was Paul. As a matter of fact, when he encountered Christ, he was on his way to kill people, to kill Christians, over a hundred miles away from where he started. Now, this isn't a hundred miles by car or train. This is a hundred miles at best by an animal smacking you in the rear end until you finally get there. By that point, I'd be grumpy enough to want to kill something too. I'm probably not in a position to. He went all the way to the capital of Syria from the capital of Israel. <clears throat> and I guarantee you, when Saul was on his way, that the Christians who were praying and freaking out in Damascus because they were there, 
they clearly knew he was coming because we'll see that we'd see that in the text. That's Acts chapter nine. But imagine if that was us. And here we are freaking out. And we're at a moment like that. If we knew that somebody was on their way to this building and they were going to have us arrested, they were going to have us beaten, they were going to waterboard us or smack us down or whatever with all of the legal might behind them. We have no recourse legally behind it. The first thing we probably have to decide is what kind of Christian we are going to be. Can we be honest? But then I imagine we would probably have the most sincere, full-on prayer we've ever had together corporately. And I can just see the imprecatory prayers popping out. Daniel going, oh, Lord, break their teeth in their mouth. Make their legs fall off before they get here. Oh, Lord, let them all get hit by a bus. And you can see Bruno Blick, amen, brother, amen, amen. You know, and then Hugo would come up with some kind of sly way for them to die that would be more French, you know. Oh, yeah. And they'd be like, oh, yes, we, oui, we, oui, Lord, we, oui, we. Oui. You know, and we'd all be getting into it. And then Haley would probably pop in with a couple of things she saw from like Instagram or whatever. And, yeah, Lord, let's do all that. And let's say right in the middle of it, we're all kind of hyped up. Yes, Lord, I'm sure. Lightning, that would be so great. They get to the door and boom, just fry them in front of us. That would be cool. They open the door. You're done. And boom. French toast! That'd be so great! Yes, and Deborah, because of her Italian blood, she's like, yeah! Right? You know, you get that. And all of a sudden, Suti just kind of stands up and goes, how about, what if the Lord just saved them? And we'd look and go, shut up, that's impossible. You know, we would be like, that would be so harder to believe that God would just drop a truck from the sky, a lorry, just flat out kill them. That would be great! But imagine if just one person stood up. Marcy goes, I just want to pray that God would save them, that they would become a Christian before they got to the door. And maybe one of you would be like, but how about God blind them too? <laughs> you know, and then somebody says, wait, wait, wait a minute, he's, you just got out the station at Covent Garden and now our hearts are racing. And so did you hear the news? What news? Saul just got, Paul just got saved. I mean, he was born with the name Saul, just like this guy. Just got saved. And I could just see someone going, shut up. No, really. Oh, by the way, he was blinded too. And you could see Deborah going, see, that was my prayer. Blind part. You know, I mean, and you could see that kind of pulling together. And the reason I say that is, is that even the most outspoken antagonist against Christianity can still find Christ. But we have to give God room. But what they need to see is Jesus. So they know who they is, that they're really fighting. And they're not really fighting us. Jesus made that really clear to Paul. Because when this man encountered him, the first thing he said is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Remember the guy you thought was dead and stayed dead? Mm, not really. I'm right here talking to you. And I love the fact he doesn't say, you do realize you're persecuting me, right? No. There's none of that. The question he asks is, why are you doing this? So, why? why are you, what are you really trying to accomplish by doing this? 
And it was that that made Saul, that encounter changed history. Well, Abner's in a place, well, what does it take to push Abner over? An accusation from his boss. The one who he propped up into that position, by the way. So he says, The Lord has sworn to transfer the kingdom to Saul, verse 10, set up the kingdom of David over Israel, over Judah, also verse 10, from Dan, which, by the way, is the farthest north to Beersheba, which is the farthest south of Israel. Now, I don't even know. Can, does anyone know what the farthest north to the farthest south points are of the UK? Oh, well, there you go. What's that? Land's End is our end south here. Okay, beautiful. Thank you. See, so there's the idea. But apparently it must, need, it must not be such an expression that we all are like, oh, yeah, of course, that, right? You know, in America, we just say from coast to coast. We really don't have time to figure it out beyond that. Uh, <clears throat> now, now follow me on this. So Abner now sends messengers, verse 12, on behalf of David, saying, whose is the land? And don't you find this interesting what he says here? Look at all that Abner knew while he was still finding it. He knew that the land still belonged to David, his proper king. Make a covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. David said, good, I'll make a covenant with you, but one thing I'll require of you. You shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. The rightful king does want peace, but it is never, never, never at the expense of his bride. Now let me ask you something. When we start talking peace with the world, is it ever at the expense of his bride? We will see when we get into the king books that there is this crazy story, but ultimately there's a civil war. It doesn't involve Captain America or Iron Man, but even worse, the nutty kings. But ultimately in that, the two kings have an allegiance, and it's sort of the king of the north has has a child who marries the king of the south's child, boy and girl. There's a prince and a princess. They marry and have a kid, and it does not go well because the union that they're having is not under the allegiance of God. And if we do it at the expense of God's truth, it is not true union. Well, and that's here, though. Now, David was legally married to her, and then what happened is, if you remember, David made his escape, and as David made his escape, Michal, by the way, was given to another man. Dad did that. And dad, again, I remind you, was Saul. David wants his bride. And he will only be king over that which acknowledges their betrothal. Ishbosheth sent and took her. Now, I remind you, this is the king doing that. Did you notice that? This isn't even Abner doing it. It's actually the guy that propped up to be king against David. And, he, and this king, the right king, tells the other one, give me my girl. And there's nothing he can do to stop. When the king wants his bride, there's nothing the enemy can do to stop. Ishbisha sent and took her from her husband. Interestingly enough, her husband's name is Paltiel, which means God delivers. 
to the son of Laish, which means lion. And her husband went along with her to Bahurim, young men's village, weeping behind her. And Abner said to him, go, return. And he returned. So Abner apparently is forceful enough to freak you out and make you go home. What we'll find is, and this we read, by the way, in 1 Samuel 25, 44, that when David uh, had left, Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. Uh, once reinstated, we'll see, by the way, David will be criticized by this woman, and you can tell she has now come back stained. But she's come back more than just stained. She's come back bitter, and she's going to have a real problem with David. She'll be the one wife that we're going to find here that has no children to offer David. There will be no fruitfulness in her criticizing David's worship. I find that interesting. We'll find that, by the way, in 2 Samuel 21. She will ultimately, oh, actually, by 2 Samuel 21, what we'll find, though, is she has a sister named Merav, and she winds up raising uh, her children. So apparently her sister dies, and uh, this gal winds up raising the children. It would be her nieces and nephews. Verse 17. Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In times past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now, then do it. For David shall be king over you. Now, did you get what he just said? This guy, Abner, not only knew that God had promised the the kingdom to David, but the people themselves actually wanted David as king. This guy, Abner, did this not only in direct defiance to God's desire, but also in direct defiance to the people's. Isn't it amazing how influential one man can be that all the people really seem to want David? He's like, look, at in times past, you guys all wanted David. Why didn't you, why didn't you get him? But not going to work. Verse 18 says, well, I'll then do it. For the Lord has spoken to David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Now, don't miss this. Amner's disobedience led a group of people who wanted the king away from the king. One man, who apparently seems to be forceful and frightful, led a bunch of people who wanted the king away from the king, who led a, who to, in essence sought to delay at best the king from taking the land that he was ultimately going to get because God promised it, but also because he did that, he put the people in peril of the Philistines. Did you say, God, look at, Abner knows, he says, God promised this, that when I bring my king and he takes the throne, the Philistines are toast. So do the math. As long as Abner can keep David off the throne of all the people, well then, the Philistines are going to be a constant problem. But the moment that the king really takes the throne like he should over all of Israel, the Philistines are done. They're done for. And can I say often like that, whether that's the influence of the enemy, whether that's the influence of the world, or whether that's the weakness of our own flesh nature, which we will battle. When the Lord takes his proper throne of our life over every area of our life, what we're going to find is that those things are toast. And we want to go to battle and go, God, I just want... I want my flesh to stop ruling me. I don't want to be in these addictions in my life. And I don't want all this weakness. And I'm so sick of my anger or my evil thoughts or my moods or whatever it is. I'm just so tired of all of that. And my view towards people and my bitterness and the way that just rubbish flies out of my mouth. I'm tired of that. Or I'm tired of the temptations of the enemy. I'm tired of him constantly lying and I'm listening. And you know the moment you sit down to listen to the enemy, start his show, he'll give you the whole performance. 
And I'm so tired of the world and their standards and now I'm getting sucked into all of that. And we want, we want to fight those things. And he goes, look at the Lord's like, let me become the Lord of your life over every area and I'll take care of those things. I will drive those things out and the Philistines don't stand a chance. And here's Abner looking at the people going, I know you wanted this. And God also promised that the moment David becomes king, he's going to deliver all of Israel. At this point, how do we even view Abner as a friend? But I bet you have friends like this that really don't want Jesus to be the Lord over all your life. Because if Jesus is the Lord over all your life, you ain't going to be so close to him as you are at the moment. But might I say, then you might have an Abner in your own life here. That either he needs to change or he needs to go. Can I just be a friend enough to tell you that? Abner spoke then in the hearing of Benjamin, verse 19. And obviously in this case, Abner's changing. Abner went to speak to the hearing of David. Uh, in Hebron, and all seemed good to Israel in the house of Benjamin. So Abner and twenty men with him came to David at Hebron. David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, that you may reign over all that your heart desires. And David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Now I'd like you to consider, as we're almost done here, what just took place. Abner surrendered. And as Abner surrendered, as a as, an, as a general, if you will, in the enemy's army, as Abner surrendered, as long as he was willing to surrender to the lordship of the proper king, the king was willing to actually hold a feast over that. So what if you were one of those people? I'll be honest, I was. I look at Hugo and I think Hugo was. I think there were several of us in this room that we might say we were kind of that. We were kind of a general. There's nothing proud about it now. We were a general or a ringleader in a world of sin and hurt and shame now. But the moment we sat down with the king and said, you, you take the rightful throne. He didn't just say, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to kill you. He actually threw a feast. What an amazing king. Well, at that moment then, guess what? David's commander, well, he's not going to take it so well. At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. Joab and all the troops who were with him had come, and they told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Joab came to the king, and he said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away and he's already gone? Surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you. You know you're, to know you're going out and you're coming in and know all that you're doing. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him to the well of Sirah. Sirah means the turning, but David didn't know it. So now he's got, now, now why, would, why would Joab do this? Can I remind you, Joab has a couple of brothers. One's name is Abishai, but the, and the other one's by the name is Asahel. Remember him? Fleet-footed goat guy. The guy that's sort of like Mr. Tumnus is an athlete. And if I remind you that he was the one who chased after Abner, and Abner then took the blunt end of the spear. You guys remember that? It was like goot, and they kind of turned him into a kebab. Well, the reason I say that is he's got a vendetta. I mean, Joab and Abishai have a vendetta against Abner. This wasn't about talking peace. They've done something, and you understand, because of that, they can't see the peace of the king because they're too busy in the bitterness of unforgiveness. Let me say that again. They can't see the forgiveness of the king because they're too wrapped up in the bitterness of unforgiveness. 
Is there anyone that God could forgive right now that you would even be angry with God about because He did? You're like, God, how dare you? You don't know what they've done to me. But the King is merciful. And unfortunately, Joab is going to take matters into his own hands. When Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside to the gate to speak with him privately, and there he stabbed him in the stomach. And there he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Well, that's what happens there. Afterward, when David heard of it, now the, le- the rest of the chapter is basically how David responds. When David heard of it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the, hand of, sorry, on the head of Joab and all of his father's house. And it says, this is so beautifully Middle Eastern, and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge, or is a leper, or leans on a staff, or falls by the sword, or lacks bread. You realize David just cursed Joab. Oh boy. This is like, may the lice of a thousand camels infest your sister. This is what he's saying, these kind of things. And, and the reason I say that is David is openly not just condemning the action. At this point, he's standing before the guy and he's going, you are responsible for this. I am not going to. And what's interesting is this guy that was guilty before but had repented. Well, what was the big difference between these two guys? If you think about it, Abner, though he had even killed some of David's men, apparently, he surrendered to the king in the end. And that was all the king was looking for. Joab, on the other hand, in killing Abner, refused the authority of, G- of the king by doing so. He, t- he chose his own leadership over the king's. And that was our problem. Verse 30, so Joab and Abishai killed his brother. Uh, sorry, Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother, Asahal at Gibeon in battle. Then David said to Joab and all the people who are with him, David now is not only doing this privately, he's going to publicly make clear that this was not his idea. David said to Joab and all the people who are with him, tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth and mourn for Abner. Now, notice who he's telling that to. Not just to all the people, but all the people. And who else, according to verse 31? To Joab. His commander, he's like, even though Joab's the killer, he's the murderer here. And understand, he's like, look at he killed my brother, I'm going to kill him. He's like, tear your clothes. Gird yourself in sackcloth and mourn for Abner. You need to recognize what you've done is wrong. What do you think would have happened if Joab hadn't done that? I imagine at that point, Joab would have gone and had to be executed himself. This was Joab's opportunity to repent. And apparently, he does. David followed the coffin, so they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. The king and all the king's men weep at the death of of a newly acquired citizen of the kingdom, even if he still smells more like the past than he does his future. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, Should Abner die as fools die, or as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put in fetters, As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. Then all the people wept over him. Again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food, while it was still day, David took an oath saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it and it pleased them. 
since whatever the king did pleased the people. For all the people of Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? I am weak today. Though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zeruiah, that again, that's, I remind you, that's Joab and Abishai, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Joab has, still has it coming, by the way. When David is on his deathbed, Solomon to become the next king, another son, Odonia, takes the, is propped up to become king instead. And who joins Adonia's rebellion, his coup? Joab does. And because of that, and that's in 1 Kings 1, 7, I believe, once the coup fails, Joab takes and runs into the tabernacle and he says, well, then let him kill me here to, jo- to Solomon. Solomon goes, okay, well, he said that, let's do it. So in 2 Samuel chapter 2, roughly, roughly about 28 to 34, You'll find that he does that. Solomon does exactly what Joab said. Well, if he's really a man, let him come and kill him, kill me here. Job's, and Solomon's like, okay. Now here's the point of it. In this chapter, let's wrap it up in a nutshell and pray, friends. As we're seeking to grow in Christ, let's be honest, isn't that what we're here for? We're seeking to become more like Jesus. We're seeking to let Jesus become more the Lord of our lives. He is going to take the throne inch by inch or more but he'll only do it by invitation. He'll never do it by force. He'll never do it all at once. And as he does it, he'll never be without opposition. But the more he becomes Lord, the more fruitful he becomes in our lives. And the more that the old ruler, if you will, loses his grip upon our life. And as that is the case, we should expect, strangely enough, that even some of the loudest mouth antagonists to our newfound faith may actually sway and come and want to join camp. And at such a moment like that, would it be easier for us to be bitter and tell them, no, just go to hell? I mean, being literal. Or will we really be honest enough to say, you know what, if Jesus can forgive you, I know he who lives inside of me can give me the power to do the same. Now, I'm not telling you what you need to do now is, is, you know, move in with the person and let them be as horrible to you as they were before or whatever. What I am telling you, though, is, that the more you hold bitterness onto anyone, you know, I've said it before, it's like drinking poison to spite your enemy. You're not punishing them anyways. You're punishing yourself. And the more we let that go, the more we let God do a miracle in our lives. Is there anyone in your life right now that you would be upset if God actually saved? Could you imagine what that would look like to our Savior? I just want you to know, There's just no one beyond that kind of saving. And my king is merciful. If he's to send his son to die on a cross for me so that all my sins could be forgiven and that he would rise up to offer me a brand new life not like the one I used to have, then I need to demonstrate that life. And that new life, by the way, is one living in forgiveness. And I remind you, there is nothing God gives that is just enough for me Everything God gives me is in abundance so that whatever he gives, I can then turn and offer to others. That includes his forgiveness. And look, I'm not a person that isn't without people to forgive. But I'm also not a person that doesn't need to be forgiven either. But as the Lord continues to take further dominion in our lives, 
One of the areas we're going to see in that fruitfulness is self-control, but another is forgiveness. And I would love for you to be free tonight. I would love for you to tonight to walk out of here. Look, at, maybe you'll never have a chance to talk to that person. But you can make a decision tonight that you're not going to carry that with you anymore. Why in the world do you want to carry that smoking gun upon you one more night? That poison upon you that just erodes at you and dries up and decays your vitality. Tonight you'll be like, you know what? Yeah, they are messed up. And I can tell you, I know that even people in my life that have done crazy things, I knew that the Lord had changed me the moment that that same thought of them used to make my toes curl and just put bile in my throat was replaced with compassion. And the moment that I had compassion, now look at that doesn't mean I want to put myself in harm's way. But there's a part of me that everything changed the moment that I looked and I realized this person needs Jesus. And not just a lorry falling from the sky on top of them. And what if they've confessed Christ? What if they're actually calling themselves Christian? Well, then there's still gods to deal with. But I don't have to carry the weight of them anymore upon me. And tonight I'd love for you to be free of that. So as we pray, can we pray for the Lord to become Lord of more and more and more of us? Lord of all. Lord of all that we know, and as he continues to show us more, may he become Lord of more of all. And part of that will be being the Lord of our forgiveness. Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text. I just am so enjoying going through David's life. And I just pray tonight for every one of us, God, that you would tonight... Deliver us from ourselves. The part that picks up something and continues to beat ourselves with it because of somebody else's bad behavior. No doubt there are people out there, they're messed up, and we forget we are too. But for your grace, Lord, we'd all be helpless, hopeless people. But tonight, we are seeking you. And we are seeking, God, for your Holy Spirit to do something so much more in our lives than just entertain us or inform us for a moment. God, we want to be changed and we want to be free. And we know that the world out there is looking for evidence. And that evidence needs to be me. I want to celebrate you and be the light you call me to be. And for that to happen tonight here in this room, Lord, let me no longer be encumbered by my past, by the things I've done, God, that I need to just remind, be reminded, Lord, that, the, that your blood has washed me clean of those things so many years ago or whatever. But Lord, also, that if I really want you to wash me clean of all the things that I've ever done in my own memory, well then please wash me clean, Lord, from the things other people have done in my memory. So Lord, that tonight I could walk in the newness of life with a fresh heart and a fresh mind. And Lord, that doesn't mean that the, the situation may be even changed before I... Before I face it again, it may may be a current situation, but I can be different in it. That I I can be embracing you, having your compassion and wisdom, and praying, Lord, for your lordship to take over the situation. But first, take it over in me. 
So, Lord, I don't have to be a part of the problem. So, Lord, tonight deliver me. Clearly, you've paid for everything at the cross. Not just my sins, but everyone's sins. And whether they choose to say yes to you or not, why in the world would I want to carry their sins when you've already done it? So, Lord, tonight, deliver me. Not just remove me. Remove me means I want to be gone from those things, but deliver me. Remove me from those things because you're a God of replacing. And in, in its place, Lord, take instead of the garment of heaviness, cover me in the oil of gladness. Instead of, Lord, a life of mourning, replace it with dancing. And instead, Lord, of a heart full of ashes, replace it with the beauty of holiness. Oh God, even tonight, please, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.